This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back to the program. Sterling Fox with you on this Saturday afternoon. Joined on the line today by Stuart Zuckerman, founder and senior partner of the Zuckerman Law Group. Stuart, good to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's always great to have you on the program. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to get right cut right to the chase here, Stuart, because we know how popular you are. So let's just give the phone number out and uh, offer up free legal advice for the next few minutes at 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898 for your questions on family law matters to the founder of the Zuckerman Law Group, Stuart Zuckerman. And, Stuart, it's those commercials that you have on the radio that I want to start with today. You and hockey great Ray Ferraro have a bit of a chat about uh, family law on your radio ads, and Ray asks you point blank about this widely held sentiment that the courts still have some kind of intrinsic bias in their decision making, and you refute that. Talk to us about your the, the whole thing. Well, yeah, uh, certainly when I started my practice uh, in the 1980s, I I did occasionally come across typically an older male judge that might have. Uh, what you might call a biased approach to man versus woman in family law, but I haven't seen that really since the since the 80s. Uh, the law law is blind. You know, there's that statue of justice in the law courts with the blindfold on, holding sure. up a scale. Right. And the test the test is always does the evidence satisfy the the test in law on a balance of probabilities. So the evidence has to tip the scales 51. 49 in favor of whichever side, whether that's the man or the woman, in order for the court to make its decision. So the, the court is not biased uh, in terms of deciding custody or child support, spousal support, things against men or against women. Right. The, the, there are the myth that, that the court is biased against men typically arises from the fact that when, you, when it comes to spousal support, the, the, the law says that the higher income earner has to pay spousal support to the lower income earner if right. parties are dependent on each other. And historically in Canada and North America, men tend to earn more than women. So it's more often the case that the husband has a higher income than the wife. And so the husband is the guy who's ordered to pay support to his wife. But I've had many cases where I've gone to court uh, where I've gotten support to be paid from a wife to a husband where the wife earns well, more well, than the husband. The higher earner, so, sure. There's no bias there. And similarly, when it comes to custody, uh, there's a perception of bias because, again, typically in the North American household, it's usually the the woman who has been the the home care provider or the primary caregiver of the children up until the date of separation. Right. So when the parties separate, it's unreasonable to expect that instantly the court is going to switch the children to a 50-50 schedule when mom has been the one who's taking them to school, picking them up from school, taking them to doctors, etc. Um, on the other hand, if you had a uh, a lifestyle where mom and dad both worked and they used before school care and after school care and and they were both equally involved in the care of the children that's a case where the court's typically going to come out with a 50 50 arrangement because that, that accords with the best interests of the children that were in place up until the separation sure. so you know these bias these perceptions of bias arise simply from 
the practicality of the situation where a woman might be favored because she was the primary caregiver or or might get more support because she earns less. But it's not because of the fact that it's a man or a woman that's asking for the relief from the court. Right. Now, you've mentioned this several times, and it's great to have you back, by the way. You've mentioned this several times, you and Ron, when you've been on the program, about the dramatic changes to BC family law that occurred in 2013 and really did change, uh, move the goalposts and leveled the playing field, so to speak. But, you know, these biases or these suspicions or these sentiments, Stuart, remain fairly widely held. Does that surprise you? Um, well, there's no question. I get calls all the time and people that come in that think, you know, well, I'm the man, so I'm screwed, or I'm the woman, so I should have sole custody. Right. Um, you know, you get, you, you definitely have, the public has that perception, and it's, it's not supported in the decisions that are made by the court. So I think it's just a question of time for the public to come to an understanding that, that really justice is fair to both sides. It's not favoring one over the other. Okay. Now, we did open our phone lines, and we appreciate the fact that uh, a lot of people are already taking advantage of the free legal advice we've offered on a Saturday afternoon. 604-280-9898. Roger in Coquitlam has been waiting longest. We appreciate your patience. Roger, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Go ahead to Stuart Zuckerman. Um, I'd like to ask you about the Canada Child Benefit in a situation of uh, shared custody parenting. Uh, and what you were speaking of just a moment ago with um, both parties being uh, primary caregivers, uh, that was a circumstance prior to our separation. And I had um, uh, the CRA provide a ruling that because we lived separate and apart but shared the same address for the first year and a half being in Vancouver, it's, it's mm-hmm. challenging. Yeah, you bet. Uh, you know, to, to uh, move out into separate spots, and that was certainly our, our circumstance. But the CRA deny my application for Canada Child Benefit, and they were citing a spot in the Canada Child Benefit that says that when a man and a woman live in the same address or same home as the uh, children, that the female is presumed to be the primary caregiver. Hmm. I, I wasn't aware of that ruling. I, I have dealt with the child tax benefit um, on shared custody situations on several occasions. The thing that I was aware of is um, it's often the case, uh, it, normally if one parent has primary care, let's say mom has primary care, then dad is paying child support to mom right? because she has primary care. And what Revenue Canada has said is that the person who pays child support cannot claim the child tax benefit. But what what I have seen with shared parenting where the where the father and mother have 50 50 care of the children where they're in separate residences not in the same residence is if you set up your agreement or your order such that dad pays his amount of his full amount of child support per month to the wife and then the wife pays her amount of child support based on her income to the husband uh, and you have a provision in the order or agreement that in alternate years they will claim the child tax benefit. Revenue Canada has generally allowed that, where they'll pay the child tax benefit to one spouse in, let's say, even-numbered years. Right. And to the other spouse. Alternating, sure, years, yeah. Because they're both paying support to each other. But they won't do that where they do a set-off amount, and let's say, dad, let's say dad's supposed to pay 500 a month, and mom's supposed to pay 400 a month based on their incomes. And instead of paying those full amounts, dad just pays 100 bucks a month to mom. CRA, in that circumstance, has ruled that because dad is paying child support to mom, dad cannot claim the child tax benefit. But I'm, I have not seen um, this uh, decision that uh, the caller is referring to. To me, uh, although I'm not a constitutional law lawyer, I, I would think that that might be a violation of the charter because the, uh, the, the rights 
of men and women are the same under the charter and for CRA to take the position that uh, just because separated spouses occupy the same residence, uh, they should prefer uh, or presume that the woman has primary care. That doesn't make sense to me, particularly if there's a written order or agreement between the parties that says that they are sharing 50-50 the care of the child and where they agree to share the child tax benefit. So you you would recommend perhaps to Roger that he not take this sitting down and uh, pursue it a little further? Yeah, he might speak with a constitutional law lawyer uh, to see whether uh, there's some kind of uh, appeal of that decision that can be made based on the charter. Does that help, Roger? It does quite a bit, and I can actually tell you where the Income Tax Act uh, has that. It's uh, section 122.6. Um, uh, paragraph F of eligible individual. I've been uh, uh, pushing against the CRA uh, pretty hard, um, and I'm quite frustrated with with the the response that I've I've been uh, receiving. Is it's clearly a gender bias um, where where it says the female is presumed to be the primary caregiver despite providing documents where we have a, we've had shared custody. Um, it's documented, it's agreed. Uh, we had a bird nesting arrangement um, that our mediator arbitrator had set us up with. So, Well, I, um, I, I, I would take Mr. Zuckerman's advice if I were you, Roger, and, and pursue this a little bit further. But, Stu, I wanted to come back to you and talk to you about the situation that Roger presented because he mentioned, hey, it's Vancouver. It's a tight, tight, super stupidly priced housing market in for, for many people, and it's not always easy to separate and go your separate ways, even though that's the desire. Uh, economically, it's not always possible. So you end up with people sharing the same address and, well, living in very different parts of the house. Does that well, happen to you? Have you heard it, that it, a lot? I, I, it happens all the time. I have gone to court uh, and fought uh, for uh, where, you know, one spouse once the other one kicked out, uh, it's called an order, where that person is applying for what's called exclusive occupation. And the person who is being sought to be kicked out says, no, I want to stay in the house. I can't afford to pay my own separate rent. And until that house is sold and divided between us, I want to live there. And the, the test the courts apply is uh, firstly, whether you have to, in order to kick somebody out of the house, you have to prove that it's a practical impossibility to share the home. That's the first stage of the test. Okay. And so t- on that test, the court will look at what's the square footage of the home. Is there a, a front door and a back door that could be used for entering and exiting the home? Is there a, is it possible to put up a door between the upstairs and the downstairs and have one party live downstairs and one party live upstairs? Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had that situation where the court ordered a door to be installed sure. uh, and, and have the parties separate and share the laundry room on certain days, etc. Um, and uh, it is a common problem. The second part of the test, if you do prove that it's a practical impossibility to share the test, to share the home, and usually that's because of physical abuse or extreme emotional abuse, um, or because the house is too small to share, then the second stage of the test is called the balance of inconvenience test. And so the court weighs whether one spouse or the other would be more inconvenienced by having to move out. And on that test, they look at the income of each spouse and their ability to afford alternate housing. They look at extended family members. Does the husband or the wife have a brother or a sister uh, who sure. lives in the community mm-hmm. with, that has a spare bedroom? All yeah. those things are considered by the court and then deciding who gets kicked out of the house. Interesting stuff. Let's go right back to the phone board as Rose has been ever so patiently waiting in Surrey. Hi, Rose. Thanks for your patience. Go ahead. Hi. I have a question. Um, my friend has recently separated from her husband, and they have 
uh, four-year-old daughter, um, they decided to share custody 50-50. But she's now worried that her ex may be uh, inappropriately touching her daughter because she started to display certain sexualized behavior um, and says some strange things about her father. Um, and how old, is this, how old is the child again, Rose, please? She's four. Oh, my. Okay. Uh, is there some way to protect the child? Stu? Uh, of course. I mean, this is a serious concern, and I've had a lot of cases over the 32 years that I've practiced that involve sexual abuse allegations. Um There's a couple things. Number one, your friend can call the Ministry of Children and Family Welfare and report uh, whatever the child has reported to her, including the child's behavior. Uh, This is a way to deal with it outside of the courts, so to speak, in that the ministry will send a social worker to come to the the mother's home and will interview the mother and the child, uh, sometimes interview the child separately, sometimes have the child examined by a family doctor. Mm Uh, with the with the social worker, and if if there's sufficient um, concern or evidence uh, of abuse, the the ministry itself may um, uh, seek a protection order or give a direction to the mother that she's not to provide uh, uh, parenting time to the father um, until uh, the investigation is complete. Right, and uh, that would effectively kind of override any agreement uh, that the parties have in place. Um, if they already have a court order. Um, sometimes, uh, rather than the ministry having authority over it, the, the, the mother may have to bring an application to court for a restraining order against the father to, or a supervised access order such that his contact with the daughter uh, will be uh, supervised by uh, an independent agency. The father would typically, sometimes both parents share the costs of that. It might be something in the range of 75 bucks to 100 bucks an hour to have a professional supervisor present during the father's visits with the child. The father, in that circumstance, would not be permitted to speak with the child out of earshot of the supervisor. Right. So everything that's said between father and daughter uh, will be heard. Uh, and the supervisor makes a record of what's going on and observes the interaction and reports back to the court while any investigation is going on. And in that time, the mother could get an order for a child psychologist to interview the child or an art therapist to work with the child in order to bring out what may uh, or may not be occurring. Sure. The courts do have a, a principle of uh, uh, protecting against the risk of harm. So if the if the evidence in support of the application, uh, that is, if the mother's testimony, the thing my my daughter said her father, you know, touched her between her legs uh, uh, at, at this t- time, or my or my daughter is, you know, has never previously uh, masturbated herself and is now masturbating herself uh, every time she's at my house and never did this before. Um, you know, those are things that raise concerns with uh, the court and with psychologists or doctors who, you know, if, if this is an, a new behavior uh, and if it can be attributed to something that's happening at the father's home, then that's uh, that's of concern that would result in the supervision. And then, uh, you know, that the supervision may remain in place until a trial where a judge hears the testimony of both sides and d- decides whether the evidence is sufficient enough to uh, deny the father parenting time to the child or to continue the supervision. And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer. As we continue our conversation with the founder and senior partner in the Zuckerman Law Group, Stuart Zuckerman is on the line. And his website, of course, is ZuckermanLaw.ca. Zuckerman is spelled Z-U-K-E-R-M-A-N, ZuckermanLaw.ca. Stuart, uh, more calls. Uh, lines are open, friends. 604 
280-9898. Stuart, last time you and your your partner, Ron Hunink, uh, joined us in studio, uh, you brought up an issue about uh, affordability, about how someone in a relationship who is the non uh, income generating partner in the duo uh, who wants to, in the uh, moments of separation, uh, approach a lawyer and uh, find out what kind of leg they're standing on and maybe launch uh, some action of their own, but they have absolutely no money. And there's a whole provision for that in law that I want to talk to you more about uh, that you revealed for the first time to many of us, including me last visit. But we do have some callers on the line. So out of respect for Gary's patience out there in Langley, let's go back to the phone board. Gary, good afternoon. Gary, you with us? Hang on. Let me press the right button. That might help. Hi, Gary. <laughs> Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. <laughs> this is a rookie here at this end. So what's up today, Gary? Um, I just have a question. I've been separated for seven years, and my divorce is currently before the courts, and I've been paying child support, but my ex is, um, is requesting uh, spousal support based on the fact that I've just been promoted in my current position. Uh, I'm just wondering, um, is that something that you've seen, and um, what's the likelihood of her being successful? Hmm. Sure. Can I first ask, Gary, uh, are you, were you already paying support? Are you currently paying spousal support or only child support? Just child support. Okay. And so you've been separated for seven years? That's correct. That you, and, and during that time, you didn't pay any spousal support? None whatsoever, no. And, did she, and she never asked for spousal support during that period? Uh, that is correct, yes. Okay, well, I mean, that's a factor that makes it a little bit more unlikely that she would get spousal support now. Because spousal support, there's a couple of different ways spousal support entitlement arises. The main one is based on need and ability to pay. So typically, if you have a long-term relationship and let's say the husband is earning significantly more than the wife, then when they separate, you know, if the husband was earning 80000 a year on the year they separated and the wife was only earning 30000 a year, that means the couple before they separated had a $110,000 a year lifestyle. And when they separate, the wife drops from 110000 to thirty, yeah. and the husband, husband only drops from one ten to his eighty. And so spousal support is typically ordered to bring the wife up and to bring the husband down so they have an e- even playing field uh, to some degree based on the based on the length of the relationship and based on the difference in their incomes. Uh, but if, so, if a couple separates and they go seven years and there's no request for spousal support for those seven years, it suggests that the that the that the wife in that circumstance had no need for spousal support, which may uh, inhibit that argument if she tries to argue now that she has a need for support just because your income has increased. Um, so that's uh, that's a difficulty she faces. The other uh, basis of entitlement to support or an other basis, is uh, uh, compensatory support. So that is where one spouse, typically, again, the woman, let's say, sacrifices her career in order to stay home Mm -hmm. and have children and raise children. So she had a job. She was earning $40,000 a year, moving up the scale. And then she gets pregnant, takes maternity leave, and then she has two or three kids and stays home for five or seven years and then goes to reenter the workforce. And she doesn't reenter the workforce seven years later where she would have had she not had children. Mm -hmm. So she has an argument that she's economically been disadvantaged by reason of the marriage or its breakdown, and therefore she should be compensated with spousal support. So that's another type of support. Now, this whole issue of um, she would be in a much stronger position if, let's say, uh, Gary was paying her 
a small amount of support all these years, these seven years, if he was paying her 100 bucks a month or 500 bucks a month based on their income differential, and then he gets promoted and he has a bigger income, there is, in fact, a legal argument for, for the increasing the payments, sure. For, for increasing the support. And, yeah. and that, the, the argument is if his promotion can be linked to the marriage. So if the wife supported him during the marriage in this same career in which he is now being promoted, um, then she can argue that the only reason he got, or p- part of the reason he got the promotion, is because for the 10 years of their marriage when he worked in that company, she cooked the meals, she took care of the children, she got up at night with the kids, he's the one who was able to go to work, and that's why he now has this promotion. So his increase in pay is something that she should share in in that circumstance. On the other hand, where you have a, a let's again, in the same situation, let's say the husband uh, left his former career two or three years ago and started a brand new job post-separation, you know, five years or seven years after the separation, and then gets promoted in that business, uh, he would say that my prior marriage had nothing to do. Right. My wife didn't support me in this career. It's a brand new career. So my increase in pay is irrelevant to the issue of spousal support. But Gary has some protection uh, in the fact that the, there was no support being sought for seven years. So the court is going to say, well, why all of a sudden does the wife now need support? And how is uh, his increase in pay linked to her need uh, for support? So, you know, I, it, it's certainly possible that she'd be awarded support, but it, it reduces the likelihood because of the seven-year time gap. Interesting stuff. Gary, thanks very much for your call. As we go to Victoria next and uh, check in with Patty. Hello. Hello. Yes, go ahead, please. Okay, uh, I'm phoning uh, because of my son's situation. Um, he is, um, his wife or his ex is getting the child support credit, and he does not get any of it because when they separated, she got a lawyer and he didn't. And uh, he apparently signed a form that said that she would be entitled to the child tax credit. Is there a way of reversing that now? The My grandson is now 12 years old. Hmm. Well, it wouldn't be related to the age of the child. The only thing that would relate to that would be if your son now had primary care of the child, whereas previously when he signed that agreement, the mother had primary care, that might be an argument to seek to vary that on the basis of the material change in circumstance. Excuse me, is, Stuart, now- is that the case, Patty? Does does your son have, is he the primary caregiver now? It's 50-50 okay. and always has been. Okay, Stuart? And, well, you know, this relates back to the earlier comment I made to the earlier caller. If your son is paying child support to the mother and the mother is not paying child support to the father, then normally the CRA will not allow the payor of child support to collect the child tax benefit or even the uh, equivalent to spouse uh, uh, tax credit that you can claim on your tax return when you have a child. So normally those things are... Uh, claimable by the spouse who is receiving child support. Okay, Patty, does that help at all? Okay, you're saying uh, if she was receiving child support, she would be the one entitled to the... Correct. The the tax benefit, yeah, the child tax benefit, right. So it doesn't matter if they have 50-50... If it, if they ha- if they have fifty fifty and they have a child support arrangement where she is paying him a fixed amount of child support per month and he is paying her uh, a fixed amount which might be higher than the amount she's paying him, then they can agree or obtain an order to alternate the child tax benefit from one to the other from year to year. But if they are if he is the only one paying child support to her, then CRA 
considers that the person who pays child support is not entitled to the tax credit. Right. Okay, Patty? Oh, okay. Um, I just quickly wanted to ask, and I'm... Um, he um, basically, she's not paying the child support. That's she correct. She makes he's a higher paid. income than yeah, he does so, too. So, so he's paying child support to her, which means only she can claim the child tax benefit. Okay, Patty, thank you very much for your call. Uh, Stuart, back to this idea that uh, that you raised when you were here a, a month or so ago with your partner, Ron Hunick, uh, talking on these matters. Uh, this, this situation came up. So let me pose it to you hypothetically, and you can return to the same conclusion you did a few weeks ago, to the astonishment of yours truly, and more than a few people listening. So here we go. Let's, let's assume uh, we're talking about a, a separated couple, a wife or a separating couple, the wife with no income because she's the she's doing that homemaker thing, uh, comes to you or one of your teammates and wants to sue for alimony and for her half of the growth in equity because they've been together for a while. How can she afford to do anything if she has no savings account of her own, no income of her own? How on earth can she hire um, uh, an uptown lawyer like your very self? Yeah. So this does arise quite frequently. And, and since 2013, there is a provision in the Family Law Act Section 89 of the Family Law Act provides that the court can order an advance uh, against the equity in the assets that exist. Uh, they can either, if there's money in the bank, for example, if there's $100,000 sitting in the bank and it's in the husband's name and the wife has no money, um, the, the, and since the law presumes that the wife is entitled to 50% of the growth in equity during the marriage, the court can order that, for example, 50000 of that $100,000 sitting in the bank be paid to the wife as an advance against her future uh, claim to an entitlement for division of assets for purposes of uh, retaining counsel or for purposes of hiring an expert. So the advance can only be used for legal fees, taxes, disbursements, and expert fees. Um, and then let's say there's no money in the bank, but there's a million dollars equity in the house. So you've got a house worth $1.5 million. It's got a $400,000 mortgage on it, so the net equity is $1.1 million. Yeah. And, the, and the wife has a presumptive entitlement under the law to 50% of that. So she's entitled at the end of the day to 550000 But the house is only in the husband's name, mm-hmm. and the wife has no assets. If we could bring a court application on that basis, if there are no other assets uh, with which to uh, touch, and ask the court to order the husband to go to a bank and refinance the home to borrow sufficient funds to provide the retainer necessary so that if our if our opinion to the wife is that she needs fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars to retain us for a trial right. that goes into an affidavit and the court can order that the husband uh, take out an equity uh, takeout or an equity loan uh, against the home uh, and that that money be paid to our firm in trust and be used for legal fees disbursements taxes uh, on behalf of the wife to assist her Interesting stuff. And, and the other thing, of course, is that we can, if the parties have a significant income differential, uh, we can go to court and ask for a spousal support in addition to that advance. And so the wife would then receive an income stream every month from the husband, from which she can deduct certain amounts to be paid to her lawyer for to build up a retainer as well. I'll be honest with you, Stuart. I had never heard that before until you and your, your, your friend Ron Hunink brought that to our attention on the radio here on CKNW about a month ago. And you know, I'm sure in your lengthy experience in 
family law, on more than a few occasions, people have come to you literally at the end of their ropes, not knowing any of these details about the ability to generate cash uh, in a relationship that is going south in order for one, the unprotected person, shall we say, in that relationship to at least uh, mount some kind of defense. Uh, I, I wonder how many people are even aware of that and how many people are in situations right now where they are they're feeling trapped because they have no money they want out of the relationship the power uh, struggle the power imbalance is crazy uh, and yet they they don't know that all they need to do is go to a lawyer and have this conversation and find out for themselves that yes there is a way out yeah and in addition to what i've just described if if, if the if both parties are untitled so if, if the title to the home is in the name of both parties, then you wouldn't even necessarily need to apply to the court. One of the spouses could go to the land title office, and they could transfer their their joint tenancy into what's called a tenancy in common. So they And, and it only takes one spouse to do this. You can go to the, the land title office. You can transfer your half interest in the home to yourself as a tenant in common. So instead of the home being held as joint tenants, you are now tenants in common with a 50-50 interest each. And you could go out to one of these uh, companies that provide uh, mortgages like Alpine Credit or Capital Direct, all these, or a bank, and you could get a mortgage against your half of the home and right. borrow against your half of the title to the home. That's another way of doing it outside the court system. All of this, of course, is refundable based on the on the outcome of the process, which will see eventually the property sold and divided from which any advance fees are subtracted, right? Correct, yes. So they're subtracted from the share of the person who got the advance, it comes out of their share. Stuart, if a couple are not married but just living together, are their rights to asset division or alimony upon separation any different than the rights of a married couple? No, if, if you've lived together for a period of two years or more... That's the key, isn't it? Two years, yeah, right? So, so if it's less than two years, the answer is yes, the rights are completely different because you don't have property rights if you haven't lived together for two years. Okay. But if you've lived together, if you've lived together for two years or more in a spousal-like relationship, then the, the rights of an unmarried couple are exactly the same as the rights of a married couple. That is, that, that the growth in equity from the date of cohabitation forward in such things as homes... Uh, bank accounts, RRSPs, uh, chattels, etc. Any growth in equity from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation is subject to a 50-50 split between the spouses. Interesting. And in addition, in addition to that, they, they have the right of alimony if the if the couple has a, a different, uh, significant difference in their annual incomes. Interesting stuff. Stuart, I'm almost out of time, but your website, ZuckermanLaw.ca, been trolling through there in advance of our conversation this afternoon. One of the things that I came across is, according to your team and extensive research of uh, practical terms, property division is primarily the main reason for trials. Why is that? Well, that uh, pe- people have a greater, more at stake, first of all, with respect to the property division. You know, spousal support is basically determined by something called the spousal support guidelines. Uh, to a large degree, there is some variation from that. And child support is determined by the child support guidelines. So those things are very predictable and can be worked out very easily. Okay. When it comes to, when it comes to property and assets, there's more complications. For example, did one party bring some of 
bring a property into the marriage that maybe they subsequently sold and then transferred into the new house that the party lives in at the time of separation. If so, the person who owned the prior property that brought that equity in has a claim to an exemption to uh, part of uh, that part of the current equity should be exempt from the 50-50 division. Another common thing is one of the party's parents may have uh, uh, gifted money to one party to for the down payment of the home. That happens. Or gifted money, uh, or gifted money to both to the to the couple together. Sure. Uh, and there might be an argument for what's called reapportionment to recognize that gift or an inheritance uh, by one party. Uh, in other cases, you might have, uh, let's say, the husband is a fixer upper and uh, they live together. Or they bought a rundown house ten years ago, and over the last ten years, every single weekend he has devoted himself to physical labor to improve the home. And he did that without being paid by anybody. He did it on his own. Right. Um, he did all that labor for 10 years. And he argues that because of his contribution to the equity without that he hadn't been compensated for before, that he should get more than half the house to recognize the value that he contributed by doing all of the rentals and extensions. Got it. So there's lots of re- reasons that people argue over property division more than the other areas of law. And sometimes that requires a trial judge to, to help them uh, figure it out when they can't come to an agreement themselves. Interesting stuff. Call us before. Before your spouse does, we know who you are, Stuart Zuckerman. Thank you very much for taking time out of your weekend once again to be with us on Vancouver Consumer. Pass along our best wishes to Ron and the team. ZuckermanLaw.ca, friends. Zuckerman, Z-U-K-E-R-M-A-N, law.ca. Stuart Zuckerman, thank you. We'll talk again soon. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Sterling. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.